Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. It is Friday, and that means something we do on this show every Friday for a couple hours is uh, engage in the brightest conversation in Hamilton Radio. And every week we find someone who can do that. And the guy, the guest that I've got on today, I'll tell you, I'm sitting in this studio at the corner of Longwood and Main, right across from Westdale High School. And right directly behind me is a window into the Y108 studio. The very studio where my guest tonight, for years, toiled in the mornings as half of J and Big D in the morning, back before he became a respectable citizen and worked as a city councilor for three terms. His name is Jason Farr. How are you? I'm great. Are you sure it's not the other way around, Scott? <laughs> well, citizen part. <laughs> well, could be. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll leave that for you to, to, to break down. But yeah, I, I, I remember coming in in the mornings and seeing Jay and Big D working in the morning in the, in the Y108 studio. It's, it seems like a lifetime ago. I'll never forget. Talking about respectable, uh, Alan Cross was the boss and he was one of the best ever. And he was PD for a short reign, you might recall, about a year. Right when I started, and there was one morning where I really wanted to be on this bus to Montreal for a Leaf game. And I was going with all the boys, and Alan had said, well, what time does the bus leave? I said, about halfway through the morning show. And he says, only if you check in from the bus en route to Montreal. Well, you can imagine the shenanigans if you ever went on a a hockey road trip uh, from (laughs) Hamilton to any other big city. And uh, so I decided I'd script out the answers for the you know, the stand-ups that I was doing live as Big D tackled things from the studio. And I had people that normally wouldn't say things like, I'm very much looking forward to the museums that we will. <laughs> <laughs> and really embellish the uh, arts and cultural scene of uh, Montreal. When we're in reality, it was your typical uh, boys weekend on that bus. But it was nice of Alan to give me those few hours just as long as I did those cut-ins. Well, and, and that probably that month you probably left at about 8 in the morning, and I'm guessing that by the time you got back on for your hits, people were already well into the um, lubrication. Exactly. It was something <laughs> to behold, for, for sure. I, I, I stayed sober. Since Al was being such a good guy, I waited until after the morning show <laughs> had ended at 9. <laughs> well, I, I, every time Jason comes now, as I say, Jason's been a city councilor for the last the last three terms, and so you know it's been a slightly different vibe because you were you know. But I, when Jason was you, after you did that show, you did a talk show that was a startup talk radio show uh, station yeah. in the city, and yeah. I remember getting a call from you one day or the night before saying, "Hey, we want to um, we want to have you on the air uh, for a, a hit for something." And this yeah. was before I was doing my show, and it was for 5 a.m. And so my phone rang, and someone, the producer, called and got me on the air, got me ready, and they said, you'll be on in like three minutes when we come out of the news. And I just remember it was so early that by the time you guys finally got to me, I was asleep. <laughs> I had fallen asleep <laughs> with the phone on my chest. And <laughs> later on, I heard the clip, and you're like, and Scott Radley. And I was all you hear is... <laughs> <laughs> well, I do, I do recall. But you know, you 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 persevered and became a regular, and so it was a great training ground for what you're doing now, Scott. Which is phenomenal, by the way. As you know, I am a, a big fan. I listen a lot in the evenings, and I'll tell you, we uh, could always count on you. And that was the only time you dozed off. So you, it was it wasn't like uh, one striking out. Well, sure. although you did catch me with one other one. There was one other morning when you got me. You called. And I was not expecting it. And you said, can we come on? You need to come on. So I came on and you said, and you started asking questions about a column I'd written at the spec. And I know it was early in the morning, but I had no idea what you were talking about. And I'm thinking, <laughs> I can't say I don't know what I wrote. That sounds horrible. No, and no. And I'm thinking, what in the world? I, I, have, I, clue, I have absolutely no idea what they're talking about. And it was only when you finished the question that you went, oh, wait, that was Steve Milton who wrote that. And I was like, oh, thank goodness I hadn't <laughs> lost my mind. <laughs> Milton always insisted on 50 bucks if he came on. That's why we always called you. <laughs> yeah, well, always, always been the cheap one out of the two of us. Uh, we got uh, a well, lot... It was a training ground. Hey, you know what? And I think I got you back a few times over the years as counselor. I think my phone dropped dead once, and then I think I might have even forgot I was a guest at one point early on. So 
we're even. We are even, absolutely. Well, and and listen, we've wanted to have you on to do this. It's always complicated when a person is a a sitting politician to do this thing on a Friday night because, honestly, for the most part, we have had sitting politicians on. Mm-hmm. Um, the tricky part is they're often in a position where you kind of know what the answers are that they have to give because of the situation they're in. So we wanted to do this with Jason for a long time based on his radio past and everything else. But I, when when it didn't work out and he wasn't going to be sitting at council again, I said, this is the time. Let's get, let's make this happen. So, um, Jason, we've been following for six weeks now the uh, Emergency Act hearing that's been going on in Ottawa uh, don't want to get too deep into the weeds on this one, but just before we came on the air, I was talking with Scott Thompson about this. It is my belief that it doesn't matter what we heard or what the final report says, that no one's opinion will have changed as a result of anything we've heard in this. Do you disagree or do you think that those who were in support are still in support and those who are opposed are still opposed and we've gotten nowhere? Yeah, give or take a few percent. Absolutely. Uh, and I don't know if we've gotten nowhere only just, I mean, generally, the Canadian populace is more educated on what the Emergency Act is. I mean, it's so few and far between that we didn't really know the nuances. And so anybody who followed, followed it, even generally, at least know, hey, you know, number one, it's a very serious act, uh, which should be, you know, instituted in, in, in extreme uh, occasions. Uh, and, and on the other hand, you know, uh, it also called attention to the fact that while there's protest after protest for anybody who's ever visited Ottawa, it happens often, but mostly on the front line of, uh, of Parliament, not, not in the capacity and to the extent for the days and the noise and the times of, of, uh, of the truckers and that protest then. And so, so it, it was a reminder as well of a mood that hopefully is never repeated again. Uh, was it necessarily an emergency, though, Scott? I mean, you're right. I mean, some are going to go, absolutely, glad he did it. Others, what the heck was he thinking? And, and I think that's the, the people, and I agree with you, and whoever's on whichever side is probably exactly where they started on this one. If you voted for Trudeau, I would bet you money that you believe that it was the right move. And if you voted against Trudeau, I bet you money you thought at the beginning and still do that it was the wrong move. I don't think anyone's yeah, yeah. changed. Absolutely. Actually, soon after... Uh, he instituted the act. I, I was running, you know, provincially for the Liberals in Hamilton East, and that was in May. And um, oh boy, were those who were opposed to Trudeau really letting me have it at the door? And I mean, it, it was futile me explaining that's a different level of government and all of that. I would just, you know, hear them out. But um, you know, it 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 fueled a narrative and and a feeling. For a lot of folks who maybe were, uh, you know, it was either latent or they were keeping it inside. But when they they felt they had an opportunity when a liberal knocked on the door. And boy, I was quite surprised to the point where, you know, if I would see a pickup truck in an alley with a Canadian flag attached, I wouldn't bother knocking on that door because I knew where the narrative was going to be. Mm. Uh, so it did. It did open up uh, in a, in a big way. I think a lot of people who maybe weren't as engaged politically before, particularly those with, uh, you know, you know that line of, of thinking. And and I was quite shocked and surprised. And they certainly didn't hold back on the words that they were espousing uh, in description of of what it was that was angering them. And and primarily, I mean, it was a lot about the mandates and everything else, but primarily it it was fueled by the fact that, you know, he hauled all those truckers out of Ottawa. There was, uh, the Prime Minister was giving his testimony today, and I would say from what I saw, I didn't sit and watch every minute of it today, but uh, he was well prepared, and um, what he said was probably what we would have expected him to say. He didn't get caught on anything, he didn't say anything too outrageous, but there was one line, and I know that he explained it a little bit later, but I wanted to bring this line up, because this, this is one thing that jumped out at me. He was talking about how public protests are an important part of our democracy. But then he said, and this is a quote, but using protests to demand changes to public policy is something that I think is worrisome. Jason, isn't every public protest of any government thing a demand to change public policy? Isn't that by definition what a protest is? Oh, yeah, and the defining word is demand. Absolutely. They come in different forms, mostly peaceful. You know, the ones on the front lawn of, of the parliament. 
absolutely, mostly peaceful. I mean, it's signage, it's it's bonfires, it's kumbaya, it's those sorts of things. It's the sheer numbers that that that, that are garnering the attention in most cases. But it, it is a demand for change, absolutely. And demand may seem like a, a strong word; it may seem obnoxious, whatever the theme is or what your opinion is on the theme, but. Yeah, almost always, I would suggest that, if not always, that that's what uh, these political protests are. They're, it's change, and it's been that way forever with protests, for sure, at least since the 60s. Well, so, so and you could argue here that, that Trudeau, who's a liberal, capital L, but also small L, would be looking at the right-wing or perceived right-wing protesters and say their demands are somehow different. But, I mean, when you have people blocking the street out in front of Hamilton City Hall and painting slogans on the streets illegally, that is demanding change to public policy in the same way. I uh, his, his comment today, the, the thing that I found interesting about his comment, to me it may change or it, it stands to potentially put him now in a position, a difficult position, because if someone who tends to be politically aligned with him also has a protest, should he not be worried about that as well? If a demand for a change to public policy is worrisome, then it shouldn't just be which side of the political aisle it is. It should all be worrisome. Yeah, you don't get to pick and choose is what you're saying. And absolutely. I mean, if that if that was a statement that that is uh, well publicized tomorrow in all the newspapers, I mean, uh, for sure he'll have some explaining to do because, absolutely, he of all people, uh, you know, a lot of his support uh, over the years, particularly in the early days, uh, were from large groups and organizations that uh, unions, as an example, many uh, early on, especially where you know that that their whole organization is built on the lobby effort in the demand for change or changes, some of the multiple uh, scenarios that they've presented to him and ideologies that he he's adopted, whether it, you know, is a, a pipeline organization. Pipeline protests yeah, would be an example of people stopping yeah, the pipeline absolutely. from being built or whatever. Pick your, pick your thing. There's lots of examples. Absolutely. And then there's the bigger organizations like, you know, the Federal uh, Municipalities Commission, the, the, uh, the uh, provincial AMO, uh, they come, you know, uh, frequently uh, and and present their causes and say, "Here's our numbers. These are this is what we're hearing from all the mayors and all the big cities, or you know, all the councils all throughout Canada." And um, you know, climb on board or not, it's still a lobby. It's still there's there's still that demand for for change from even those very organized and affiliated groups, whether they're affiliated to you know the liberals the the conservatives or whoever happens to be in power, but they, they definitely have a voice. And, and, and the presentation might be a little bit different than, you know, how the truckers uh, went about things, but it's still, you know, a protest or some sort of uh, organized movement towards getting in the head and changing the policy of those people in charge. Well, it, it is going to be so with his testimony and with this decision and with this hearing and everything else, it's going to make it a very, I think, a very tricky thing for this government, as long as it's the government, to the next time, for example, we saw um, a couple of years ago, we saw railway lines being blockaded across the country. And if you're saying that we can't have these things that slow down commerce and that risk lives and all the rest, I don't expect the Emergencies Act is going to be invoked again because nobody wants to go down this path. But boy, it really creates a, 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 there's going to be a lot of questions if somebody doesn't say we have to get in there and immediately clear them out. We've, we've kind yeah. of now created this thing where it's, okay, this is now what we expect, that protesters who get in the way are going to be cleared out. Yeah. I mean, and that's tricky if you want to say that, because I don't think we, we don't want that, I don't think, in our society. I think we want the right to protest. No, absolutely, particularly if it's something you're protesting that you really believe in, and uh, you've seen the successes of uh, protests in the past. I, I, you know, I think the duration of the trucker protests was what caused the angst. I think the reason why, and you know, catching some of that testimony uh, here and there, it, it appears no one really that should have had the inside intel, no one really anticipated the length, the duration, the the wherewithal for those protesting to just hang in there as long as it, it took. And you don't normally see that. Uh, I, right. I don't recall, uh, you know, I mean, there was Oka, there was others that, that did stand the test of, uh, of many, many weeks. And, and, you know, the longer it gets, the more distraught the other side becomes and confused. And maybe that's why 
things get done like emergency measures put in place where, uh, you know, they just, they're just not used to those scenarios. So it could be that the, the duration of the protest is a factor as well. But an immediate uh, response or, a, or even a, a violent response is not probably the right thing to do, especially in Canada. You know, we're free. We have that uh, right to, to, to speak up. Uh, to to present our views and and if it if there's some obstruction to the regular day to day in that presentation, I mean that's by design by those groups and and oftentimes that is the case. I mean you talked about locally what we had endured on a few occasions, whether out front city hall or on Main Street, sort of a kid glove approach. I think good work internally, particularly by our police to say, well, hey, you know, you grab the, who's the organizer? Get the organizer, take them aside. How long is this going to go on? I mean, that's the first or second question. How long are you going to be here? Oh, another half an hour, two hours. Okay. All right. Well, we're, we're going we're gonna to stand down, but, you know, you can't be shutting down our core for any great length of time because you are affecting people's, you know, uh, commute, uh, business, all of those things. And there's some sort of amicable uh, resolution where we'll allow that protest to, you know, we'll we'll let you hang out till the press deadline, but then we got to do something about mm. it. And who's going to clean this up and those sorts of things. But I don't see, it's not often that you get, I can't remember how many days those truckers were honking horns in downtown Ottawa, but uh, it's certainly something that I don't remember in my lifetime. Uh, Jason, this Monday in New Zealand, there's their Supreme Court, Uh, came down with a decision on a case that they'd been hearing for a little while. And what they said was, you should not be cut off from voting only when you get to 18. 16-year-olds should be allowed to vote. What do you think about that idea, about lowering our voting age in Canada to 16, 15, 14, 12, who knows, whatever? What do you think about lowering the age? Uh, well, you know, it's funny. I, I did catch that story, and, um, you know, we just talked about, you know, the right to protest and how protest is about demanding change. Well, that was the product in New Zealand of tens of thousands of 16-year-olds in an organized, uh, you know, nationwide protest. It was the Make It 16 protest, and uh, and it, it was a Supreme Court human rights challenge, and they won, and now it's going to the uh, par- parliament there in New Zealand. The prime minister supports it. Now, it's still got to pass, I think, 75%, so multi-party legislation that has to pass to make it uh, so. Uh, but, you know, obviously the kids are, I think, more engaged now, and I see I just called them kids, so there's the paradox. You're basically saying, do we want kids to vote? But, you know, they're, they're young uh, adults, let's say at at eighteen for sure. I think we all agree. At sixteen, uh, are we a little too close to you know still sort of uh, kids versus young adults? But look how organized they were in New Zealand. It's no different here. A lot of that uh, make it sixteen action was based on on climate action protests, and we've seen that in Canada. We've seen it with Greta and all her friends, all young friends all around the world. And, you know, when it comes to climate protests and the messages behind it, I think, Scott, and you might agree, you've had these interviews in the past, I know, they seem to be more knowledgeable than most of us on the things we need to do. And they have obviously the most vested interest because it's all about 20 years, 30 years from now, what kind of world it is they want to inherit. And certainly in all of these very organized protests all over the world, including here in Canada, their message has been very resounding, very clear, and has already instituted all sorts of change. But it shows the intelligence level at such a young age, I think. Well, first of all, their Make It 16 was far more successful than our Make It 7 for an NHL team. So th- we should have got their people to uh, to help us. We would have had an NHL team here by now. Look, I, I'm... I I am in such strenuous disagreement with the idea of lowering the voting age. In fact, I think we should make it harder to vote in this country, honestly. And I know that's a highly unpopular position, but I think we should we should require that you can pass some sort of basic civics test before you... Honestly, because the idea... Yeah, we want everybody to go and cast the ballot. But we've heard people say, Jason, over the years, you know what, you should be fined if you don't. We should have mandatory voting. I can't think of anything that would be worse for our democracy than asking a bunch of people who couldn't care less and pay no attention to say, well, you've got to cast a vote for someone. Because the, what, what, I want people who actually know something and have skin in the game 
to be the ones who are making the decision. And that's kind of my reason why I, I, I hate this idea so much. If you're 16 years old, yeah, you may be more knowledgeable, but, but for a very, very, very small percentage, you're not paying bills. You're not living on your own. You're not working for a living. You, you, to me, there has to be to at least to the point where you are probably a contributing member of society and have some skin in the game to vote. That's my, that's why I don't like it. I just don't like bringing it down to the same kids who are doing stupid stuff on social media. And that's not every kid. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, if you're not, if you're not an adult yet, if you're not going to be able to be charged with a crime as an adult, you shouldn't be voting on who's running the country. Yeah. And I, I've heard your, I've heard that very argument from you before, and, and, and you're not alone. Uh, certainly, you know, we have this issue. We have it here in Hamilton. We have it in Ontario. Burlington really had it in the last municipal election, and it's voter turnout, and it's apathy. Yep. And, and that doesn't necessarily always translate, and I'm sure you will agree, to ignorance by the electorate or those portions of the electorate that do not participate. But there is the other side of this where if you do participate, whether you're 16 or 60, and maybe have no interest or no knowledge or never have had any vested interest in politics, be it local, provincial, or federal in this country, uh, you might, once you do put some skin in the game by actually exercising your franchise, right? So there's a, a counter-argument to it. It would be very difficult also, Scott, and I have heard you talk about this before. It's one of your many opinions that always makes me go, hmm, there goes Scotty again. Uh it's one of those situations where you have um, opportunity to get more engagement from people, which is ultimately what we need to, to do to better understand, you know, where the majority lies, where the, the best decisions come from, uh, you know, what is obviously uh, the greater opinions of all. I mean, you're you're ultimately trying to, Make everyone happy in politics, in running uh, uh, the, the government like a business. And, you know, you got to know what it is they want. And the more people tell you, you know, the better breakdown you're going to get. So it's almost like a, a statistics game. And right now we're only hearing from 30%. And that, that, that makes you wonder where the other 70% I, is. I agree. It doesn't mean that the other 70%, it's not like 65% of that 70% are all saying, oh, I don't give a, you know. I mean, there's a whole bunch of them who, after the fact, maybe regret not voting or are scratching their head and wondering why. Or are that group, which is a pretty strong uh, percentage as well who just don't trust those politicians maybe, or maybe disappointed a long, long time ago. You got to change that mentality. And the only way to do that is get people engaged. Uh, well, and I see, that's the thing is I don't want to disenfranchise anybody. I don't want to say you're not allowed to vote. I'm simply saying, look, we, when, when someone comes to this country and they immigrate, they have to pass a test. They have to do the immigration stuff. They learn, they probably know more about our country than a lot of people who have lived here all their lives do. Honestly, they do because they've had to learn this stuff. And that to me, that's kind of the point is that I want to believe that the people who would be voting are engaged and know what they're doing and know what they're talking about. And I, I, you know, I'm not saying that 16 year olds or 14 year olds couldn't know what they're doing, but I also know that, you know, times have changed. Sure. But when I was 16, uh, you know what I would have been interested in voting for someone who offered me free stuff. Because I don't realize that I'm going to have to pay taxes for that down the road. And so it creates, if you don't have, in my mind, if you don't have skin in the game somehow or a likelihood, again, because not every 18-year-old lives alone or works for a living, I get that too. But if you don't have skin in the game somehow, to me, it becomes way too easy just to go with whoever offers you the most free stuff and nothing is free. Yeah, well, the kids in in New Zealand are going to tell you you know, when the, the the tens of thousands that were part of the Make It 16 campaign are going to say there's no greater skin in this game than the environment. And I'm not going to, you know, okay. start down that okay. path with you. But, but, but that, those same that, people... That was where this was born. Okay, but those same 16-year-olds that say, I want now no fossil fuels being used because I want to save the environment, don't have to pay the groceries that have suddenly gone way up in price because now you have to find other ways to get the stuff to the stores. Their mom and dad are doing that. 
Like there's, there's trade-offs here where you say you can be idealistic. I don't mind someone being idealistic, but there's also got to be some reality built in there as well. Yeah, and it, it, it's, it's not necessarily an arbitrary number, 18. That's all over the world. I think it's probably New Zealand's, I, I'm not sure, maybe you know, if that's the first country that actually is looking at, you know, literally throwing legislation on the table to lower the age to the lowest age for voting in, in the world. Maybe not, but that's the first I've heard of it. But, yeah, I hear where you're coming from. I just, I, I think 16-year-olds, just generally speaking with you tonight, are, are a lot more engaged and smarter than, than we were when we were that age, for sure. I mean, I did run for student council. I was sort of that hyper-local kid. Did you win? And I was, I was interested. Uh, I think I became vice president. I, 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 I did run the BAC, the Boys Athletic Council, which was, it wielded more power than the president. <laughs> How would Hamilton politics look different or the same if we had 16 as a voting age here, do you think? I think you'd have probably younger uh, councillors, maybe even a younger mayor. Um, you know, I, I, there, there is that ability from the, uh, 16 to 20 demo to, to mobilize. I mean, we've seen it in Gore Park with actually climate action protests more than one, uh, where thousands show up. And when you think about right now the voter turnout, again, roughly 30%, um, you know, it only takes about 3,500 votes in some wards, mine in particular, uh, to, to, to succeed, uh, to win. And so there's that potential that they could put um, like minded, younger politicians in um in that horseshoe uh, of 16 people in hamilton and maybe even some that are 17 years old because i'm going to assume in new zealand if you can vote at 16 you can run for office at that age too i would assume so and and you i think you're probably correct i think that probably would happen i'm 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 puzzled with what you're describing about these protests and and you know we're aware of them um 16 to 18 so right now when you can vote at 18 where do all those 16-year-olds go when, so if they're, if they're this mobilized at 16, why, when they finally get the opportunity to vote at 18, are they not going out to vote in those same huge numbers? I, I don't understand that what's is, happening in that meantime. That is the million-dollar question. I mean, it is broken down. Generally, seniors vote more than any other demographic. Um, whether it's municipal, provincial, or federal, Scott. And uh, it's a good question. And in fact, the conversation we're having about this potential legislation that is going to take that 75% majority in New Zealand, probably not going to happen. The Labour Party hasn't even come out yet with a, a statement there in New Zealand of where they stand on it. Only the Prime Minister and the Green Party, I think, at this point. The National Party has... I don't know. I, it's a really good question. It's a million-dollar question because, it, and if it's the, if that's the case, and they've gone through all of this, you know, human rights. This this stems from a human rights uh, trial and and the the decision in the Supreme Court to allow sixteen. It was, it was a it, the the decision was that it's a violation to not allow sixteen-year-olds to to uh, to vote in New Zealand, and therefore the legislation now is coming forward. Uh, so it's based on what, what a judge has said, based on a, a, a human rights uh, violation. And, you know, again, tens of thousands show up in New Zealand. Tens of thousands is this Make It 16 campaign. But it doesn't, doesn't, necessarily, it doesn't necessarily mean that a whole bunch of 16-year-olds are going to vote. Maybe initially because it makes such noise. But it, but it, it, and I don't think it would translate to greater voter turnout uh, from that younger 16 to 20 demographic here. If we did it here, yeah, I wonder. I, I wonder about traditionally it. they don't take part. You're, you, you know, it's, 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 we've got to get radical. The more we, if, if we really want to get more people out to the polls, and you've talked about it before, and you even alluded to it uh, with your own with your own theories, uh, because you know it's it's been discussed usually around election time. How do we get more people to vote? Do we offer cash and prizes? I've heard you talk about that on the show in the in the past, and different people are trying different things throughout the world to to, to uh, get folks to exercise the franchise. But, you know, ultimately, it doesn't seem to be, it doesn't seem to be motivating. The demos tend to stay the same, uh, and it tends to be skewed to be more engagement from, uh, from the older crowd. It's, yeah, it, it's, again, I go back to the issue that I have. I, I believe that if you, with what you're talking about, where you have very active 16-year-olds in protests and things like that for the environment, the environment, obviously, it's a big, big deal. 
if you were to say, okay, you know what, all those kids who are in high school now, if they were in fact to vote and this was the thing they're going to vote for, well, how would Hamilton, how would Hamilton look different? Well, we'd probably be saying tons more money spent on public transit, tons more money. And, um, you know what, we should have uh, free transit for everybody. And we should, well, we're not going to really worry about what impact different decisions might have on our taxes. And this is where it comes from for me, Jason, because if I don't pay taxes, why do I care if taxes go up by 12% a year if the things that I think are important in the city, if I'm going to get them? If we can have buses running every five minutes on every street in the city and I can get around, fantastic. And if I'm not paying taxes, why do I care that it's going to cost a fortune? That, that to me is the problem. There has to be some age where reasonably you can expect that someone is going to say, it's going, I'm going to vote on this knowing there will be a cost of some kind. And if I think it's really important, I still am going to vote for it. If I am totally on board with this as being a critical issue, I'm still going to vote for it, but it it may cost some money. If it doesn't cost you anything, it's too easy. Your, your skin-in-the-game angle is compelling, Scott. It, it's hard to argue. It really is. I mean, it, it, ultimately, it, it could be disastrous. Realistically, you probably maybe wouldn't nothing. see a lot of... You wouldn't probably see, even if it was 16, you wouldn't probably see an avalanche of, of, mm. uh, of uh, majority uh, councils all across Canada because uh, or, or, or provincial politics or federal politics. Uh, just, just as you know, I mean, I think it would it would be quite surprising to see, even if this thing passes in New Zealand, uh, to see any great, you know, effect early. Uh, maybe you know, and that's when 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 you're going to actually have all of the attention on it, and probably the most participation you'll see from that youngest demographic will be in the first few elections, and Could then it'll be. taper off. To be honest. You, you know, when we were that age, we just had so many other th- more things that were of interest to us too. We were young and irresponsible. The, and and that's just, that's that's the thing. And you know what? I, I would also. We got to run. We got to go to news break here. But I would right. love to know what the decision would be if you said that's fine. We will lower the voting age to sixteen, but we're lowering all the ages of everything. Then so tax rates and crimes. You now become charged as an adult, and everything else also gets brought down. Is that the trade-off you want if you're now going to say that you are a full-fledged adult? That'll scare these teenagers away from wanting to vote. <laughs> I don't know, but it's, it's an interesting they got to pay one. taxes. <laughs> yeah. Suddenly it's like, yeah, I'll go back to Nintendo. Actually, that's not, I mean, that, 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 that belittles all the 16-year-olds. I don't believe that all 16-year-olds are just playing video games, but, you know, it's, it's, it is a different world when suddenly the money is coming out of your pocket as well. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, let me bring Jason Farr back in. Long time, well, 12 years, that's a long time. Long, long time counselor for Ward 2. Uh, now a private citizen. Do you miss it? Uh, a little bit, sure. I am enjoying still and adjusting still uh, to being a civilian. And as you know, Scott, same story for you. I mean, my entire adult life has been in the public eye. So it's kind of, um, it's surreal. For sure, but uh, it's fun too. It's kind of nice uh, knowing that I can two fist it at the local pub without <laughs> worry of a tweet, a mean tweet. <laughs> well, so you were—I mean, you were not a counselor for a long time before you were a counselor. So you had in your mind some idea of what a city councilor did, what they were all about, what their job was, everything else. How, how accurate was your preconceived notion of being a city councilor until you actually did it? I'd say about 65%, uh, to be totally honest. I mean, there was a lot of coverage in my radio days and interviews with people like Sam Marula and Terry Whitehead and Tom Jackson, and then, of course, all that Cable 14 political coverage that I did, election coverage and abundancy and all of that stuff. So I can probably more than the average young person that got into politics. I mean, when I got into uh, local politics, I was probably about 40, which is young, uh, you know, considering uh, the average age probably municipally is into the 50s by the time you decide to make that kind of personal sacrifice and investment to be a public servant in that capacity. But uh, yeah, no, I, I mean, 
and to the point, do I miss it? Yeah, in, in some ways I do. I'm not, um, you know, crying in my beer, that's for sure. I mean, I, I worked pretty hard for 12 years, and I think we did a lot in downtown. And when I say we, it was not a lot of decisions were loan decisions. A lot of decisions were uh, the direct result of working with, you know, the, the people, whether my fellow colleagues or whether they were the people uh, who live there and work there. And that that's the part I miss the most. What was the part about being a city councillor that shocked you the most that you had not expected? When I first started, uh, the hours uh, that literally uh, blew my mind how many hours you needed to put in at meetings. I, I was never really a big meeting guy anyway. I didn't go into it with a lot of trepidation, but I didn't go into it with a lot of knowledge on just how much time per day, per week you need to spend, and you do, especially downtown, you need to spend a lot of time at a, at a desk and debating and understanding all these this myriad of reports, and some of them are, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pages, so you, know, you need to know how to sift through things and, and isolate on the stuff that's important, but that, that, to me, when you asked that question, I hadn't really thought about it, but that was the one that sort of went, how am I going to manage my time? It was considerably challenging and 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 then i'd lose sleep thinking about how i'm gonna manage my time and that made things even worse what okay so those reports and anyone who has ever gone uh, all the city or almost all the city council reports are online (laughs) before the meetings people can go and see them if they want to and you're right i mean some of these are enormous is there any way that councillors not just you that any city councillor truly is able has the time to study all the reports that come up because there's got to be some things when you get to council you simply haven't had time to go over no and so i think over time and before my time uh wisely these reports were while more information was always requested and added and i'll bet they just got bigger and bigger as the direct result of debates by the politicians who ultimately resolved and ratified you need to include this you need to include that so these big big reports were i i'm 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 100 percent sure the direct result of being requested to be you know manipulated in that fashion but they they also fortunately over the years did reports better, organized them better. So there's this thing called, as you probably have seen, executive summaries. In all the big reports, there's executive summaries. If you're if you're an elected official in Hamilton, and you're not reading all of those, um, you know, at the very least, then you know you're not doing your job. You definitely get a great understanding of what that every appendices in that massive agenda is all about, just from a four, five, six page executive summary so that's very key and it usually comes at the front of the agenda it's usually in appendix a maybe appendix b but that's critical and then from the executive summary if you can see well oh this has major ramifications for my constituency then you might delve deep into the other you're you're wise to delve deep into many other of the appendices a lot of this stuff especially in planning that's where you tend to get the biggest agendas it's not really that necessary. You're talking about pages and pages and pages of, of engineering that can be summarized in a sentence in that executive summary. And then you get maps and pictures. Uh, correspondence, though, can really add to uh, uh, that could be an appendice that's pretty thick when it's a, a heady issue. And, and those are things, again, when it's your constituency, you're probably going to read front and back all of those. And you may have already engaged with some of the people and encouraged those people actually to be part of the agenda to write in and be part of it. And so you're triple checking that they did that. So there's a lot, there's a lot to a lot of those agendas. But the, the key thing, Scott, is to make sure you understand each and every one, whether you think it affects you or not, by reading those executive summaries. Right, because I, I remember one meeting, and I think it was Councillor Ferguson, Lloyd Ferguson, who's no longer a councillor either, but I was talking one time and said that they had had to go through something like a thousand pages before that meeting and I'm thinking there's no human way anybody over the course of a day or two could not only read a thousand pages but absorb any of it enough to have an opinion uh, I'll tell you the one most memorable with frugal Fergie I gave him that moniker and he doesn't mind it so I'm gonna call him that for the rest of our days we became very good friends 
uh, I always say that he's a little bit country. I'm a little bit rock and roll, but we, <laughs> we did a lot of work together, even though he was Ancaster and I was downtown. And I miss him quite a bit. There's a lot of people I miss. But Fergie and the Tiger Cat report, which led to an, an infamous exchange between himself when it finally ended. Uh, and a, a member of uh, a, a social media journalist, let's say, and you, you know, a lot of people might remember that. It was quite a, quite a lot of years ago, but it was the it was the MOU with the Tiger Cats on the stadium. And Fergie opened with that line in public that we had just received all of this information. And for him, I mean, he was like a dog with the bone on that. He wanted the best. He was always like that on on finance issues. He wanted the best deal for the city, and he found it to be a, an incredible challenge to just be handed all that information, Scott, just prior to going into session. And that's when we used to meet at, at night, and then ultimately going into camera, you know, going in behind scenes to deliberate it because it was a contractual matter. And boy, was he behind the scenes. I can speak generally to it. He was trying to pick apart those thousand-something pages and at the same time pay close attention to the answers from staff, and that's why he got heated at the end. The debate never did go his way. We ended up signing off on the MOU almost to uh, a unanimous decision, but Ferguson did not support it, and part of his argument for not supporting it was that it wasn't fair that he didn't have a chance to read every word of every thousand pages. You mentioned in-camera. Now, we obviously can't talk about specifics of in-camera meetings. That's against the rules. That's why it's in-camera, but... What happens behind the scenes in camera? I mean, does it look exactly like every other meeting except that the cameras are ironically off? Or no. Or does do people behave differently when that is secret? Yes. <laughs> it isn't the same. Uh, uh, some for, for some reason over the years, there's one counselor who, if it was a legal issue, they suddenly turned into Perry Mason, and it was so frustrating. <laughs> it was like they thought that they had the greatest legal mind, that they, they should be a, a Supreme Court justice, and they acted accordingly, never, ever stopped with the questions, and, and they didn't hear the answer that they liked, so they rephrased the question, and it was that kind of stuff was agonizing. I'm sure some of the things I said and did in camera were agonizing, too. You also see not... Not a majority of, of counselors, but uh, we, some of us, including myself, shed our skin a little bit, and uh, we, we become a little bit more relaxed to decorum, let's say, Scott. So you can, ex- for an example, call Fred Fred instead of Mr. Marriage you would do in an open session. And Fred calls Jason Jason, and vice versa. And, and, and in a lot of cases, that's not something that gets challenged, and no one seems to care. There was a few counselors that I think preferred to be called counselor even while in closed session, but it's a little it's a little looser. Sometimes, you know, those sessions go hours and hours after a meeting that already took hours and hours. So you move around the room and you know, you you you'll put your feet up. One time I put my feet up on on uh, Samantha Craig's uh desk and uh I forgot we were back in open session, and I was still sitting in this position, fortunately outside of the camera's view, but certainly not Craig's. Samantha was the reporter with the CBC for the City Hall for many, many years. And thank God it was her because she just thought that was hilarious. But I'd just been sitting in my seat for so long, and I started moving around, and I thought I'll sit down in media row because you guys had the most comfortable chairs. Clearly, when... um, when you're within public view, you and all the other counselors, you want to be careful about what you say. Your 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 um, decorum, your words, everything else is on display. Does you say it gets looser? Does does it get blunter behind the scenes? Yes. No. Well, yeah. Oh. <laughs> knowing that no one can you. knowing that no one can come out and then say, "Hey, Jason Farr said this." Like it's you're protected by what you say back there. I guess. Absolutely. Uh, you. The documents you're reviewing and the the agendas you're debating, the issues you're debating, everything you're talking about, including the way you're talking about it, is is a closed session. It's a it's a closed session. I mean, I don't think we ended up recording them. I always supported recording them. Um, just just in the event somewhere down the road we needed to defend ourselves for a decision we made, uh, you know, at, at the very least, and, and for other reasons. But, I mean, if we were recording them and if somewhere down the road it didn't matter anymore, uh, you would feel it. You would feel a complete 
a not a complete, but you would feel a different atmosphere than what you view and what you've observed in open session for sure. Now, there's still the rules of order. There's still the Roberts rules of order there, that we do tend to, there had been occasions, not so much in the last term, where people are talking over one another and, you know, those, those important issues that, you know, are divisive and they're, they're, you will get in, in closed session more people talking at the same time, but it's, it's it's sim- similar in a lot of ways with the Roberts Rules of Order, where everyone takes turns and you wait your turn. But you know, there's more jeers, there's more emphatic statements, and and there's some colorfulness to it. Well, well I was I was going to ask when it gets going. I was going to ask if, like, again, th- there is generally a um, I'll use the word again, decorum, but a, a sense that you know. We know that some counselors may not like other counselors that much, but you don't generally say it too much in open forum. But behind the scenes, like if I was to go down the list, and I know, again, we can't because it was closed session, but could you tell me based on what happened behind the scenes that you know each counselor that every other counselor hated? I know I hate the strong word. Dislike, you know, dislike. Grew, yeah. grew tired, grew weary of. <laughs> <laughs> didn't see eye to eye with. If if we were to say dislike or didn't see eye to eye with, I I I'd say yes. I could, you could, you could more easily discern uh, where you know your 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 friends were versus your foes, and you know if you're a regular council watcher of open sessions, you could you could do the same, but it's a little harder. I mean, in camera, it's, it's, you even say, like I say, work in the room and walking around, you know, after, you know, a five hour open session, you're into the fifth hour of the closed session. So you're into hour 11. All of a sudden you look up and you realize, oh, now I'm sitting next to my allies on council, you know, because we've been whispering or strategizing or, or just catching up because, you know, it's just at a point where that lawyer in the room has just started his, fifth diatribe on the same thing we heard the first, second, third, fourth time around, right? So you don't need to hear it again. So so those things uh, sort of evolved or, or even almost to some extent happened naturally. All right. That, that's another one. Uh, we're going through a bunch of stuff. We're talking with Jason Farr, former counselor, about some of the stuff that happens at City Hall that, you know, if you're, if counselors who are there probably can't say this stuff. Uh, and we're not giving anything away that's illegal, just to be clear. But no. how much in your mind... Because I have an opinion, but I'm not sitting there all the time. How much time in meetings, because you've talked about how long the meetings are, how much time is just completely wasted in meetings? Oh, I'm going to give you an honest answer on this one. That's another good question. It, It does depend. But on average, as a whole, if I looked at it annually and did the math, I'd say... It's fair to say 20 to 25 percent, which is a big number, Scott. I mean, that's a lot of hours. Um, but you know, that's not just wasted time because you know someone is repeating themselves. It could be you know a lack of preparation, um, a debate that there was so many occasions, Scott, where a debate should have been an hour, but it went three hours because of you know agendas that just came our way. Like sometimes reports in in any form of government come last minute and you got to think on your feet and oftentimes when you're trying to do that then you haven't had a chance in advance to look at something you're going to have a longer debate and in some cases hours longer and, and I, I there was many occasions and i'm guilty of it i'm absolutely guilty of it i'm not suggesting i i i was uh the guy you turned to as an example of great time management i think graham mckay i know graham mckay did a cartoon once with terry and i that uh spoke directly to that and it was kind of funny fred uh, or mayor fred eisenberger had framed it for me and gave it to me as a present one christmas because it uh, was uh, basically a, a quick little line that i don't remember the line but it uh, the suggestion was that uh, you know you two are spending way too much time talking well, the one and, like that. Terry this and I is, were accused of that. This is the one thing that I when I when I said I have my opinion. This is the one thing that I've often thought is, oftentimes it seems that uh, a counselor A will make a point, but counselor B, C, and D, who all share the same opinion, all feel they must also offer the same point, rather than saying I'm with that person. Time Absolutely. saved. Absolutely. 
and you're parochial, right? I mean, part of it, too, is, you know, you'll see more <laughs> talking from elected officials closer to an election, as an example, just as you'll see more motions from elected officials closer to uh, an election. So, so you know, part of it is politics. Part of it is I, I'm hopeful that what I say is stronger, even though it's the same position, because you're only going to have one position or another, ultimately, in the end. But you're going to have that line that gets you in the newspaper or, or even better, a headline, right? I mean, because there is a, a part of the job. This was the part I was the worst at. And you'd think it'd be the part I'd be the best at given my history in, in broadcast journalism and broadcasting for 22 years before politics. But it's the self-promotion. And part of that, that's part of that's a big part of the reason, Scott, why a lot of politicians do more talking than they need to do. Some are just ramblers like myself, but others just are looking for that buzzword or that keyword that's going to get them some attention or feel that if they don't talk, their constituency may interpret that as not caring. Jason, you, one of the things that I have to believe happens, though, and tell me if this has ever happened to you, how often did you not say something that you really wanted to for fear or concern of the outcry that it would have generated? Uh... Yeah, very rare, but certainly it happened. But it would be very rare. I couldn't give you a hard number on that. And, and you know, there are ways to say things without, you know, rocking the boat too much. Some counselors would say things uh, with, without thinking uh, and not or without thinking about that potential outcome. Um, not a lot, but here and there that would occur. Uh, so there's ways of making your point without, you know, offending a, a certain demographic or, or, or the staff presenting it or, uh, you know, that's, that comes with uh, experience, I'll, I'll tell you that. I mean, you're more susceptible to opening your trap and saying the wrong thing at the wrong time in your first term, that's for sure. How, how much pressure, when, when there was an issue that was controversial, how much pressure would you feel was on you to vote the quote quote the right way a lot i mean great question because you know politics can be very political and you're, you're worried some <laughs> you're you're there's my headline uh, yeah. <laughs> you're worried sometimes scott that you know your base so-called base uh, isn't going to like the perspective that you're going to offer or the vote you're going to cast on an issue. And sometimes you just know it. As an example, for me, it was urban chickens. As This is just one example, right? I mean, I was strongly supportive of the food security argument behind urban chickens. The large majority were never supportive of it, despite the fact I brought that motion forward on three separate occasions, lost miserably each occasion, and 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 was hand miserably by a lot of my constituency. Some very serious, others in jest, but still, it was quite memorable to even the average political observer because it tended to get publicity just because, you know, just the phrase urban chickens gets people's ears, you know, open. So, uh, you know, and I knew my constituency probably, they certainly never told me they had an interest. Most of them didn't. I mean, the first time I brought it up, there was a few that were supportive, but the large majority of the folks who were supportive of me were saying, Jay, what are you doing? You know, and some were saying you're spending too much time on it and, and that sort of thing. So, and the other was, uh, I remember 12-hour parking. I, I never supported 12-hour parking, especially in the core. I, I got it in the suburbs and stuff and tried really hard in my first term and again in my second term to, you know, at least make it 24 because here we are espousing the importance of having, you know, uh, commuter ideologies with our residents so they leave the car at home. But in the downtown, a lot of people don't have driveways, so they're parked on the street. And if you're working in Toronto, leaving the car at home, you're going to get a ticket for doing your part, right, for the environment. Yeah, yeah. So I would always argue, I would always argue, let's at least make it 24. I even tried making it a pilot for just Wards 1 and 2 when I was working closely with Brian McCaddy in Ward 1. But we could never get that over the finish line. And your constituency, my constituency, would tell me, no, no, you got to leave it at 12. I don't want my neighbor taking my spot. It's bad enough now that he takes my spot for eight or nine hours. If you make it 24 or more, I'm, I'm, I'm never going to get that spot in front of my house. Because parking is 
you know, that was the most coveted thing for a constituent than anything. Right, it right. was always the most prevalent issue for me, notwithstanding all of the other major issues. It was, that was the one issue that came up most often in so many ways. Did, did you or do you believe other councillors are more susceptible to becoming really cautious closer to an election? When, when, if an issue comes up close to an election, are, is, is outside pressure more likely to work to prevent you or make you do something? Yeah, for sure. If I were to say no to that question, um, all of your listeners, the ones who get the trivia question or not, uh, the ones that are 16 or 60, they would all say, oh, yeah, sure, far. Uh, so, no, absolutely, there's this, uh, it, you're walking on eggshells. You want to be very careful of what you say and do. The motions, if you watch the motions that are moved, and, again, I did this myself, are the ones that put the basketball courts in the parks or, you know, bring horticulture to that intersection. They're not divisive motions they're usually widely accepted if not unanimously accepted uh for those counselors with what you know some in the rural areas called the slush fund but the area rating capital reserve that was the direct result of the 2000 amalgamation those funds would be used for those capital expenditures of more wants than needs i will be totally honest and it's it's on the it's a matter of records god so yeah absolutely you would be we'd be you would be more inclined to move those motions closing in on election that have broader public appeal. And then the ones that might be more difficult would be coming out of the election. And that's exactly what this poor council is going to be dealing with now. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's a 6.9% tax increase that they're starting with, but it's a different 6.9 this time than anything I ever had to endure in my 12 years because of the you know inflation and everything else. What was the strangest thing that any constituent ever asked you to try to do? Oh wow, there's a there was a lot. Um, <laughs> some of the more general strange stuff would be there was there was there was a couple over the years that would you know I used to deliver blue boxes and green boxes as a service. A lot of counselors do. There was this, like, there's a few people over the years that uh, clearly were collecting albums because they asked for a whole lot of blue boxes. There's no way their blue boxes got damaged that often. Six, seven, eight times over the course of, you know, a couple of terms. Finally, I'd have to say, look, you know, you're not, you're not getting damaged. You're using these blue boxes for shipping and receiving. Uh, the strangest thing anybody ever asked, well, it, it was always hard, and it would, be, it would be strange when they made the request, but the request when they would ask me to get in the middle of a neighborhood dispute, and particularly when the neighborhood dispute was a was clearly a personality issue between two people that me or anybody would never want to get in the middle of. So there'd be some strange scenarios there. Um, I remember once about a month after we spent two years with over 100 people at, let's say, three to four different engagement sessions, what we call PICs, public engagement forums, um, a public interaction, I can't remember, anyway, they were called PICs, where the staff and the counselors and everybody would get together, and, and we were designing Central Park, which they just cut the ribbon on, and we had spent years asking the public, what do you want in the park, going through the rec uh, master plan to make sure we weren't going to put recreation in the park that was declining in terms of public appeal and those sorts of things. So anyway, we were putting two dog parks in place of outdoor tennis, which at the time in the rec master plan and as the result of those public engagement sessions with hundreds of people was desired way more than the tennis courts that were there now. And they were the, you know, the ugly asphalt tennis courts that were never really looked after all that great and certainly underutilized in Central Park. And, you know, three weeks later, I had, uh, there was a woman over on, well, I won't say what street, but starting a, a, a protest because she had never taken part in the engagement sessions, but certainly had those opportunities because everybody in the area would have had uh, letters saying, join us and offer your input and uh, then decided to start a protest requesting that we maintain the tennis courts and this was a big deal because you know it had just occurred we had just signed on the dotted line based on all that public input we knew every inch of that park how it was going to be 
rehabilitated and designed. And and this person was quite serious. So that was an odd one, I thought. And it was but, but you have to, but you and you always have to be political. You have to be con. You can't just say, "Hey, lady." you know whatever um, no, you, you no, got you got that's a that's a potential vote right there i've been thinking about this a lot over the last number of years in a city that elects counselors in a ward system like we have here so that every counselor is going to get elect, elected or reelected based on what they do for the people in their ward is it possible for anybody to really be looking at the entirety of the city when making decisions, or do you have to, by the way the system is set up, look out for your area first? Uh, no, absolutely. I, it's it's uh, you're, you're most effective if you're thinking about both at all times, right? I mean, a, a large amount of the time, what you're bringing forward is constituency, is your ward, but if you are worth your weight and Salts, what's the cliche? You you should be bringing forward motions as well uh, that reflect uh, bringing and moving our city forward, right? Uh, the positive change, amendments to bylaws, catching up on you know planning tools and doing things that bring economic development and those sorts of things. So so it's it is both the the councillors that are hyper parochial, which means they're focusing way more on their ward than than the city. Um, you know, that'll, that'll catch up with you sooner or later. Um, I, I, it doesn't happen all as often as you'd think it might, but you know, it, it's a, it's a good question because I mean, it is important, obviously, if you want to get reelected to speak to the uh, majority opinions of your constituency. And those opinions are vastly different in, as an example, Scotty, Ward two versus, you know, Ward 14. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. It's a totally different uh, style of living, basically, in those two areas. Yeah. So, um, all right. I mean, it, look, it's an interesting one. Before I let you go, and we literally have two minutes here, but I wanted to ask you this because I know this is something that you have talked about before. But in the last number of years, there have been a number of councillors, not just yourself, but there's been the mayor, there's been Councillor Nan, there's been Councillor Wilson, Councillor Clark, I believe, if I recall correctly. There's a bu- and I'm forgetting other ones who, um, and down even into other cities, down the Niagara Peninsula, we've heard of this stuff happening where it's not just anymore where someone is being critical of counselors, but actions are being taken. Do you, do you think we've hit the, hopefully more than that, but do you think we've hit the peak level of counselors being abused or do you think it's only going to get worse? Uh. Yeah, we covered that, you and I, when I had my car damaged. You're talking about how people are going above and beyond mean tweets. Well, we've got and, we've got uh, eggs being thrown at counselors. Yeah, and the mayor having a, a casket brought to the front of his house and your car and Councillor Clark had stuff. And uh, Councillor, um, uh, former Councillor uh, in Dundas um, had her... Arlene Vanderbeek. Arlene Vanderbeek yeah. had her car door kicked in. And I mean, it, is this as far as it goes or do you worry that it goes even further in in time? I think in your story, Scott, you you had initially called me, and then you found nine of sixteen elected officials had had some form of that kind of activity on their home or their person. Uh, yeah, no, I, I I hope so would be my answer. To be totally honest, it is not fun. It it, it is uh, it is a sacrifice. I know uh, local politicians are played paid well um, in most municipalities. Certainly in Hamilton, I I never said otherwise but it is a very difficult job and it is a major sacrifice uh for your family and and your friends uh sometimes it can be it can be at different times harder than other times but you know there should be a mutual respect and it sometimes it's just one or two people that feel inclined or enabled from some inside Facebook post, as it was in my case, some private site where it was time to F stuff up, as you recall, and they feel they got to mobilize and that's just to appease, you know, those folks that were supporting them online. And that has a lot to do with it. I think you and Jamie were talking about that one night about how, you know, this online stuff sometimes can 
empower people in the wrong ways. And I, I don't know. So it's hard to say. I, you know, I'd love it to end tomorrow because it's just not fun going through that. It's not fun for your family either. Um, but, I, you know, it's, as long as there's social media, because I do believe that plays a, a significant role. It certainly did with the caskets. It did in my case. I don't know about others, but sometimes they're looking for a reaction from us, too. I was very hesitant that day, and you had called me that night that my car got completely vandalized, and the timing was terrible uh, based on an inside social media campaign that I found about afterwards. But Craig was saying, the mayor was saying, you know, you need to get public on this. You need to call it what it is and that's like what they want me to do so there's always that side of it for the politician as well is that you know in a lot of cases they're just looking for attention do i want to you know give them what they're looking for it's uh it's it's it's, it's the downside, I guess, of it. And look, whether we agree or disagree with positions the councillors have, that, that, that's that's lunacy. But uh, listen, we are. I wish we had a lot more time. This is uh, it's really interesting to chat about this stuff, Jason. And we will have you back, and we will do all kinds of the stuff we did in the first hour again. But uh, really appreciate you taking some time today to do this. Thank you. Thanks to you, Scott. Thanks to Ben for hacking into my all eighties playlist again. I love the songs he chooses out of the <laughs> That's a great job. We'll talk again soon. Thank you for this. Thanks, guys. That is former Councillor Jason Farr. Um, lots of interesting stuff there. Hope, uh, you know, some of those things are things that I've had people ask before. And so now that we get the chance, let's uh, let's do it. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.